I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, Practicing the Way, Scripture. We've been talking at length about the Bible as a story, as a work of art, how we study and meditate on the truth of Scripture. But we've yet to broach one of the most controversial yet foundational realities of the Bible, its authority. How is a story authoritative? How do things like Hebrew poems and ancient history have authority over the modern disciple of Jesus? Understanding and embracing this reality is one of the things that differentiates between one who follows Jesus and one who does not. If you know anything about the anatomy of story, traditionally anyway, the format introduces a mechanism early on that propels the story's conflict. So it might be a shark attack on Amity Island or Apollo Creed, heavyweight champion of the world, decides to challenge a local Philadelphia, Philadelphian for the title. Or Luke Skywalker intercepts, you know, a distress signal intended for someone called Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's the whole thing. The mechanism is what triggers the conflict, and the conflict carries the narrative to its resolution. In the Bible, it's a talking snake. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We've been talking for a few weeks now about what the Bible is and isn't, how to understand and read it. And there's a reason that we've been waiting this long to get into one of the Bible's most divisive concepts, but we're not there yet. First, let's read a strange, awesome story about a talking snake. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, I want you to notice something here. It's true that Genesis was written thousands of years ago in a very different time and place, another language, another culture, all that. But it wasn't so different that a talking snake was business as usual. You know what I mean? The author of Genesis wasn't saying to the reader, so, you know, the snake strikes up a conversation, as snakes often do. It's meant to be strange, I think. It's meant to be unsettling. The first two chapters of this story were actually beautiful. We're introduced to God as this incredible artist who works within the raw materials of chaos and disorder to craft cosmic beauty and goodness, stars and galaxies, oceans and volcanoes, plants and animals, and then a snake, and it talks. Now, I don't mind telling you that there's a lot of debate around the first few chapters of Genesis. What is this exactly? Is this a literal historical narrative? Is it less specific and kind of more of an archetypal thing? Or is it meant to be poetic or metaphorical? And why wouldn't God have his story begin with a bit more clarity? The answer is in the first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. The answer is that God is an artist. 
Many people seem convinced that if you have something important to communicate, you shouldn't cloud that message with metaphor and ambiguity or with subtlety or with hyperbole or certainly not by provoking the person uh, intended to receive the message and provoking them on purpose. But that is not a conviction shared by God. Cover to cover, throughout the Bible story, God prefers wild, vivid imagery, metaphor, symbolism, parable. In fact, the Bible, in the Bible, the majority of God's speech is depicted as poetry. The Bible's critics, the cynics and the hip deconstructionists, they are like spectators in an art gallery pointing angry fingers at, you know, say the cubism of Pablo Picasso and shouting, people don't really look like that. This painting is not trustworthy. Now, you may not be an art lover, and that's fine, but you need to understand God is. And you have to bring that understanding to your reading of the Bible. I think we get frustrated with the Bible when we assume that when the text wants to be symbolic or poetic, it's somehow less true, as if metaphor equals fantasy, as if a poem can't tell a true story. The truth is, we use poetic and metaphorical language constantly to say true things. We say things like, scared to death, or I was at war within myself, or they gave me the cold shoulder, or, you know, adversely, they were, they're a very warm person, and so on. I remember being in a class once discussing the idea of metaphor in the Bible, and someone mentioned the use of uh, metaphor in Paul's language, specifically in his command, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And another student spoke up, really defensive all of a sudden, and said, hey, that's, that's not a metaphor, that's literal. And the rest of us argued, oh, no, of course it's uh, not literal. We can't, we can't let the sun do anything. And if you're mad just before sunset, you, you better calm down really fast. But if you're mad in the morning, you're allowed to stew all day? Of course not. The point Paul's making is that we are not to linger in anger, but resolve conflict promptly. But this student argued that if it was, in his language, just a metaphor, then how can we possibly accept it as the truth? You can see the problem in applying this kind of absolutism to the Bible. If I say to a friend, drop everything and come over, I don't actually mean in any way that they should physically drop an object that they are holding. But I do mean to communicate urgency and immediacy. The metaphor does not negate the statement. All that to say, the strange and vivid artistry of the Bible does not negate the fact that it means to say true and real things. So, questions about the genre and form of Genesis are all very valid, very interesting, I think. But even if there are questions and disagreements about poetry and symbolism, there is agreement about what Genesis means to say. Remember, the Bible is a story. Chapter 3 of that story introduces the primary antagonist of the entire epic, and the overall conflict that carries on until the final chapter. This mechanism sets the entire story in motion, propelling the narrative from beginning to end, and it is often completely misunderstood. There's a song I like uh, by a musician I enjoy that actually complains about this story lyrically, about the unbelievability of it. And in the song they sing, wait just a minute, you expect me to believe that all this misbehaving came from one enchanted tree. 
No, no, I don't at all. If you think Genesis 3 means to argue that the world's ills came from one enchanted tree, no wonder you feel cynical about it. Here again, the story is being treated as if its artistry equals unbelievability. But take a closer look. In Genesis 3, the Bible's newly introduced antagonist makes a strategic attack on the characters in the story, not with an enchanted tree, but by casting a shadow of doubt on God's trustworthiness. Adam and Eve have, until now, taken for granted simple things about God. He loves them. He has their good in mind. He knows what is good. He knows what is best. He is good himself. But the talking snake asks, is he really? Does he have your good in mind? Forget the tree and the fruit for a moment. The temptation is not an apple. The temptation is to redefine what is good and evil based on outside voices and your own desire rather than trusting in God's love and wisdom expressed by his own words and his own voice. It's actually not that complicated. Anyone with kids or really anyone with parents can make sense of this idea. A decent parent tells a child what they can and cannot do on the foundation of the child's best interests. Says the parent, you don't know how to swim yet, so don't go in the deep water. Or don't stick your finger in a light socket or don't run into on oncoming traffic. You know the drill. They tell the kid, I know what's better, so I tell you how to live because I love you and I know best. Says the child, but do you really? What if what you're really trying to do is limit and control me, stifle me? What if you're lying? What if you don't have my best interest in mind? What if there's an agenda? I have... Two small kids, and like normal small kids, they get into trouble from time to time. We do our best to lovingly discipline them, all that. But it's interesting, my son Beck usually deals with being told what to do a shade better than his little sister Isla. If I tell Beck, for example, oh, hey, don't run with scissors because you could get really hurt. He's, you know, kind of struck by that. He'll typically respond obediently. Huh? Typically hurt? I mean, pretty hurt, you say? That sounds bad. No thanks. No more running with scissors for me. Isla, on the other hand, has a little fire of defiance in her. She's awesome and infuriating. So, I kid you not, if I say, no, Isla, you can't hold a knife because it's dangerous, she immediately shouts back without fail. No, it's not! I have no idea where she gets this. This is the tendency of human beings from infancy to adulthood. And that's why this story continues to speak profoundly to the human condition thousands of years later. I would argue personally that whether there was literally a talking snake or not is secondary to the fact that this story tells the truth. All temptation, all sin, all evil and brokenness according to the story is not from an enchanted tree. All temptation is, at its core, the temptation to redefine good and evil according to outside voices and our own desires. Outside voices like your own imagination or a book or a person or a podcast and our own desire for pleasure or comfort or security, safety, what we think will make us happy rather than trusting in God's words. Ignatius of Loyola defined sin as unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my deepest happiness. Sin is a word that means to miss the mark or to fail, quite simply, and it is, in essence, mistrust. No one sins for the sake of sinning. We sin or fail when we believe a lie about what is best. 
about what will make us happy. We sin when we trust outside voices in our own desire more than we trust what God says. So in the story, Eve and then Adam trust what the snake says and what is desirable rather than what God told them. And this sets the rest of the entire epic story in motion. Now, turn to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This is a story we've hit from multiple angles at this point, but there's a, a parallel here I want to explore. We've been arguing for years that Matthew is a literary genius. In chapter 4, Matthew essentially retells both the Adam and Eve story and the story of Exodus, but with a new twist. So let's read from Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. This is a repackaging of Genesis 3. Now, previously in Matthew's biography, Jesus has just heard from God himself, This is my Son. So here's the snake all over again. Did God really say, or in this case, If you are the Son of God? But, verse 4, Jesus answered, and he quotes Deuteronomy 8, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but, listen, on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan is arguing, okay, if you want to use scripture, I can use scripture as well. Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The devil is essentially lifting a passage out of its context and tweaking it to win an argument, something many of us have experienced many times over. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, and here's Deuteronomy 6, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Just one compromise, Satan is saying, and I will give you what you desire. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written. Again, Deuteronomy 6, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Now again, a lot going on here, but part of this story is about Jesus and the Satan in a dialogue about the scriptures. Specifically, the question raised by the Satan and addressed by Jesus is this, should we trust the Bible as an act of trust in God or not? It's Genesis 3 all over again. The Satan, the snake, the antagonist, he's going after Jesus' trust in God, calling into question the validity of what God has said or God's words. And the twist in Matthew's gospel is that in this retelling of Genesis 3, the human being does not fail. Now much has been said, and with good reason, about Jesus' method of combating temptation by quoting scripture but it's actually much more than that jesus isn't using bible verses like uh like magical incantations like saying beetlejuice three times that's how many times you have to say his name beetlejuice that is have you guys seen beetlejuice Anyway, that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not quoting the scriptures to magically dispel the devil's power. Jesus' refutation of the devil by way of the scriptures is a demonstration of Jesus' trust in scripture as itself an act of trust in God. Jesus has a very high view of what has come to be called biblical authority. 
Now, very few people want to talk about that. Authority is a word that makes our hackles rise. I kid you not, when I was writing this teaching, I was listening to a band called Against All Authority. It's true. It sounded like this. And I'll admit, I, I bought that record by this band in the 90s, sight unseen, because the name sounded awesome to me. And a lot of us feel that way. Not everyone, but a lot of us feel that way. I, I once sat across from a young lady who was absolutely incensed by the word authority in a conversation about the Bible and leadership and stuff like that. And it was weird because I hadn't said anything specific about me or church but I had used the word authority to describe the New Testament's paradigm for church and the way church functions, stuff like that. And she was ticked. Do not, she said, command me to submit to your authority. And I was like, who, me? And honestly, this conversation was an unpleasant one. I'm sure you might have guessed. But my defiant nature was like, yeah, screw authority. While the rest of me was like, quiet you. You're not, you're not helping this conversation at all. Now, you may not have that same inner defiant voice, but I'm sure all of you understand that the world takes issue with the idea of dun-dun-dun, biblical authority. This is one of the benefits of recording videos like this. We can't do that live on, on stage. Here we are. It's the little things. Why are we like that? If I may, why, why are we like that meaning not why we respond to a vocal effect forget it why are we uh, adverse to the idea of authority as a people collectively now if i may let me have the next little stretch to get a, a little bit luxury hang in there we're going somewhere that I, I think is crucial in understanding the idea of trust in the bible you guys still okay brad nancy you guys all right for the last time kevin erickson wake up my gosh every time with this guy i'm just kidding i don't know him to have ever slept through any kind of teaching. You'll have to tell us, Kevin. Right now, answer aloud on your community Zoom call. Have you ever slept through one of these teachings? <laughs> I'm sure he hasn't. He said no, right? Okay, first, back, back to this. First, you need to understand this. Western peoples have widespread issue with the idea of authority, but it's not that way all over the world. Entire cultures elsewhere in the world have deep-seated reverence for authority. To many people around the world, the idea of getting itchy at the mention of authority seems really weird to them. And it's actually worse than usual for us, not just as Westerners, but as Pacific Northwesterners. Vancouver, which belongs to the greater Portland metropolitan area, is steeped in one of the more anti-authoritarian microcultures in the country. There is a religious value on a kind of false individualism. I call it a false individualism because I find it hilarious that a region famous for celebrating its own weirdness is also one of the most homogenized places I have ever been in my life. Every coffee shop is identical. There's a prescribed way of dress, prescribed design aesthetic, prescribed lifestyle. My God, it's where originality goes to die. But even though I think the whole celebration of uniqueness is a, kind of a sham, it's all under the purported um, guise of finding your own truth, man. I think about it often, the, you know, I talk about it often, the Instagram Diet Coke philosophy of do what makes you happy, find your own truth. Remember that ad that played before the movies? I mean, just do you. Yuck. Remember the movies, though? Anyway, lots of theories about how we got here. Some of them have to do with Freud. 
Freud thought that neuroses or our collective human discontent had to do with internal desire stifled by external authority. So things like the state, the church, the Bible, that stuff regulates society in a sense, but it also oppresses us and we're unhappy and neurotic about it. Or Aleister Crowley who argued, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Anton LaVey argued for the same philosophy in the Satanic Bible. Be true to yourself. Do what makes you happy. Somehow, the world of uh, coronavirus conspiracy keeps eking into conversations I'm having these last few weeks. And it's amazing the way our allergic reaction to authority manifests in panic and hysteria across the socio-political spectrum. So you've got people going bananas on social media. What, what better place to localize madness? Because apparently Bill Gates invented the virus to force us to accept a vaccine, which is also the mark of the beast, or, or the virus is somehow connected to deep state satanic cults that eat children or I don't know. The, this kind of rhetoric is usually localized, localized on the political right and it uses mantras like wake up sheep, wake up sleepyheads, we're being lied to, do your own, do your own research, don't trust the, you know, the mainstream media, trust these Instagram posts. We can't trust authority is basically the bottom line. Now the left is over here on the other side shaking their heads at the right. These lunatics, my gosh, the powers that be are downplaying the seriousness of the pandemic. Don't listen to those other guys. The truth, they argue, is that you and everyone you've ever loved will die from the plague unless you adhere religiously to rigid hazmat protocols, which you know vary wildly from city to city, state to state. And if you don't, then you're a backwoods hick, you're a villain, you're a flat earther. We can't trust authority, in other words. But really, in all of it, is the story most of us have been told by a myriad of voices, subtle and outrageous, conscious or subliminal. If someone or anything asks you to deny your own desire and your own intuition, then that someone or something is wrong, not to be trusted, dangerous. Now the irony is, of course, that we let outside sources change our minds all the time. An article, a documentary, a podcast. We're actually suckers. We think of ourselves as enlightened because we trust one thing and not another. So we think, oh, the Bible, that's dumb and ancient or backwards. We, do we even know where it came from or doesn't it have all kinds of offensive things in it? No thanks to the Bible. But a well-made Netflix documentary, sold. An op-ed in a publication that adheres to my political leaning, crucial. Wild rants about vaccines on an Instagram story, fire. Everyone needs to read this. Hands raised emoji. So why all the beef with the Bible? I would argue that widespread gripes, gripes over biblical authority have very little to do with the Bible's content and much more to do with widespread misunderstanding of what biblical authority is. There are different kinds of authority. The kind of authority we're familiar with, the kind that agitates many of us, is something called structural authority. And so that's state authority, military authority. It's the ability to coerce behavior with the threat of punishment. It's top-down power over other people. And it's typically localized in a position. So you have to do what so-and-so or such-and-such -such says because of their position. They're the boss or they're a cop or they're the governor or whatever. You don't have to like it, but there it is. 
And everyone knows political corruption exists. It's a thing. Everyone knows police brutality and police corruption is a thing. It exists. But we still got to listen to these guys because, hey, I don't want a problem and they have the position. So notice it can serve a purpose. It's usually broken. It's often corrupt. But inasmuch as it regulates chaos, there you go. Even in the church, structural authority can serve a, a purpose. I think of my friend Bethany who will be here whatever that means, next week uh, she has a commanding authoritative presence as a pastor and the people she pastors are grateful for it. And she'll, she will often say to the people she pastors, listen, I am your pastor. And she means it as a loving plea. Please listen to me. My position has a certain amount of validity to it. So there's a time and a place, all that. But the thing is, structural authority can never offer genuine freedom. Established rules to prevent chaos will not set your heart free. That's not what it's for. For that, you need spiritual authority. And that's a totally different thing. Spiritual authority is not where we go to get rules about behavior so much, so much as it's where we go to access reality. We want meaning. We want to understand the truth. And spiritual authority isn't localized in a position. Now, post-enlightenment, we've sort of excused concepts like theology and morality from the conversation around knowledge. We now call things like morality and theology belief, as in, hey, that may or may not be true or knowable, but you choose to believe it, so go nuts. And yet, science and technology, as wonderful as they both can be, cannot answer the most pressing questions of the human condition. Why are we here? What's the point of all this? Which things are good and which things are evil? And how should I live as a result? And so given that we've sidelined the deeper existential questions, you just sort of have to say, you all win when it comes to belief, which is where you get the untenable social justice notion of religious diversity and equality. And by that, I'm not harping on people of different religious backgrounds being treated equally. Duh, of, co of course we should do that. What's untenable is the idea that all truth is equal. You can go on about how all worldviews are equal and fine, but the worldviews themselves actually claim that the other ones are wrong, and they contradict one another, and they invite, they invite adherence into radically different ways of thinking and living. And they all assume that there is actual moral knowledge, not just an opinion, not just arbitrary belief, but that there are true and knowable things about meaning and existence. The Hebrew writers call it hachma, which we typically translate as wisdom. It's not just decent advice. It's how one lives in rhythm with what is actually true and good. One way the Bible's worldview differs incredibly from hip, modern, you-do-you ideology is that the Bible understands that in the same way that there are natural laws in the universe, you know, like gravity, thermodynamics, that kind of thing, there are also moral laws and relational laws and theological truth that is true regardless of your feelings or opinions. And this is, I think, why the Bible's particular approach to authority confuses so many readers. Because the Bible does have commands. That's no secret or surprise. Lots of them, actually. But some of them aren't even for the reader. Other times, when we feel strongly that the Bible should have a command, 
It doesn't. It just sort of reports information about something horrible without explicitly commanding the reader not to repeat the heinous thing you're reading. Why? It's a bit like the other questions people ask about art. How can a very violent novel actually intend to condemn violence? And the answer is by telling a story that communicates what is true. Or think about some of the most famous sayings of Jesus. Things like, blessed are the poor, or the first shall be last, or it is more blessed to give than to receive. These aren't commands at all. They're just statements about reality and the way things work. Why is more than 30% of the Bible built out of poems? How the heck is a poem authoritative? Because... The Bible doesn't presume to enforce authority by its position, but by powerfully and artistically reporting on what is true. The gospel authors make the point that Jesus taught with authority, but he didn't bark at people about rank or position, though if anyone could have, certainly it would have been Jesus. Instead, he often just told stories, or he used parables, or he explained what was true about life in the world with fact statements. And he called it the kingdom of God. Now, to be sure, Jesus did issue commands to his apprentices, and he did claim authority. But Jesus couldn't appeal to a traditional position. He wasn't on the Jewish Sanhedrin. He wasn't in with Rome. None of the power brokers of Jesus' day cared much for him or what he had to say. Jesus understood his authority as the access point to moral knowledge, or more simply, as the access point to the truth. Now, even if you're tracking with me so far, that might still seem a bit hazy. So let me try to clarify the substance of biblical authority. Allie, stay with me. This is the basic logic of biblical authority. First of all, all authority is rooted in God. God is the source of reality. God is the creator. Without him, there is no reality. So he knows best what is true and what is good. Second, because God is relational, because he gives of himself, because he's generous and loving and artistic, he has chosen to vest his authority in the collaborative voice of prophets and apostles or who, what we call the authors of scripture. Now, to accept the authority of the Bible is to accept the authority of God himself. Or, put another way, to obey the scriptures is to trust them, which is also trusting and obeying God as an act of relational love. Or, Conversely, to disobey the Bible's authority is to distrust the scriptures and thus distrust God. When this happens, we live out of alignment with what is true and good, bringing suffering on ourselves and the world around us. But that raises the question of, okay, obedience to the scriptures, how exactly? And as I asked earlier, how the heck do you live under the authority of a poem? How do you live under the authority of a parable? How do you accept the authority of a story? How is a violent story about war and genocide, for example, in the Old Testament, how is that authoritative? Do we just take the explicit commands and obey them? Which ones? Because some seem to kind of contradict other ones, so can we just kind of pick and choose? Well, there's two answers to that. One is theoretical and one is pragmatic. The theoretical answer begins with the reminder that the Bible is not a rule book. It's a story. Thus, it has rules in it or commands, and those commands are right and fitting 
within their place in the story's context. But if you move them out of their place in context, they are no longer right and fitting. So for example, the story documents commands for ancient theocratic Israel that don't really apply to the characters in the New Testament, let alone to you know, modern Westerners in 2020. But this only becomes a problem when you treat the Bible like a manual for life in the modern world rather than a story. In a story, what's important for a character on page one is very different than what's best for the same character in act three of the story. That doesn't mean the stuff in the first chapter was bad. It doesn't mean that the stuff in the first chapter was mistaken. It had its place in the story and it still communicates things that are true within their context. The Bible story is replete with that kind of thing and it freaks people the heck out. You get to Leviticus and you say, mildew? What? Rules about mildew and menstruation? Is this real? And you hear Bible scholars saying, look, that's, that's not for us directly in the direct applicable sense anyway. And then critics come along with the charge. You're cherry picking the scriptures. How can you pick and choose which things apply to us and which don't? But it has nothing to do with reading Leviticus and saying, ew, no thank you. It's about understanding our place in the story. It's not, a, it's not enough to learn and implement the Bible's rules. Jesus invites us to step into and live out of the Bible's story. In his essay, How Can the Bible Be Authoritative? N.T. Wright argues this. Story authority, as Jesus knew only too well, is the authority that really works. Throw a rule book at people's heads or offer them a list of doctrines and they duck or avoid it or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story, though, and you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a worldview or, better still, a God view. That, actually, is what the parables are all about. They offer, as all genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview, which is someone comes into it and finds how compelling it is, quietly shatters the worldview that they were in already. Stories determine how people see themselves and how they see the world. Stories determine how they experience God and the world and themselves and others. Great revolutionary movements have told stories about the past and present and future. They have invited people to see themselves in that light and people's lives have been changed. If that happens at a merely human level, how much more when it is God himself, the creator, breathing through his word? But, if that's too theoretical, then here's the practical part. Here are four hermeneutic principles for navigating the Bible story and commands. Really fast, this is not an in-depth hermeneutics class, so I'll give you the, the bare basics. It begins with something we call authorial intent, which means you have to ask yourself what the author intended to say to their original audience. It doesn't mean that none of it intersects with you and that none of it's for you, but to figure out how it does intersect with you, you have to first ask, for example, what was Matthew trying to say to his readers in the first century? What was Paul wanting to communicate to this one church in Ephesus? How would that church have understood what he was saying? Next, the Bible is an epic narrative, and while the whole of the story is authoritative for every disciple of Jesus, not every specific command is equally binding to all readers at all times. It depends on where you're at in the story. We live in the part of the story that includes the New Testament church. Isn't that weird? We're still in that part of the story. Thus, in living under the authority of the story and our place in it, we obey all the teachings of Jesus and all the teachings of the writers of the New Testament unless, 
those commands are expressly intended for specific individuals. So at the end of 2 Timothy, for example, Paul writes, bring me my coat. <laughs> we can't do that. It was for Timothy. It's not for us. You can try. Let me know how it goes. But this also applies to a kind of cultural translation. Certain cultural symbols have evolved over time. So when Paul commands that we greet one another with a holy kiss, he's tapping into an important and appropriate gesture for his time and place. He is not instituting an everlasting command for the church in the direct, literal sense. The same is true with things like head coverings for women or about the dynamics between slaves and ma masters. It's actually a, a really short list of cultural translation. But just because we can't follow them with exact cultural specificity doesn't mean they are altogether meaningless. We translate them into our own time and place. So it may no longer be culturally appropriate to go around kissing everybody, but we can absolutely greet those in the church with warm affection and kindness. In fact, we should. Those are the four hermeneutic principles. And please listen, they are never worked out in isolation or within the convenience of your own personal preferences. We have the Holy Spirit, we have the community of God's people, the church, and we have centuries of biblical scholarship to guide and assist us, what we often call church tradition. And get this, you spend a, a bajillion dollars to go to graduate school for a Bible degree for years, and you learn, hey, these things actually tend to work. If someone pokes at the Bible and says, hey, I think this thing here isn't exactly the way we thought it was all this time, well, the church comes around that person to look into it and they ask questions and academics study languages and histories and pastors give prayerful consideration and insight guided by the Holy Spirit and we work it all out together. And sometimes we say, wow, it looks like we're on to something new and other times we say, no, that is not in keeping with the scriptures. Now, it's not perfect, but, and it's, not, it's certainly not always seamless or tidy, but believe it or not, it tends to work, and it has tended to work for hundreds of years. Even so, we do have to admit that the Bible must have some level of irresolvable mystery, because why else would we have hundreds of denominations and movements and theological perspectives and systems? And that's a, a fair question to ask, but honestly, it can be a tad overstated, I think. When it comes to the core theological essentials, pretty much everyone agrees that the Bible is very clear. And for 2,000 years, there has been what we call Orthodox Christian faith that still holds to those core essentials across denominations and movements and systems. And we understand that even when the Bible is as clear as it can be, we tend to cloud our interpretation of it because we come to the Bible with all kinds of baggage and bias. But in my experience, the weird peripheral stuff in the Bible, it can be a challenge for sure, but most of the big time crises I see around biblical authority aren't about interpreting obscure rules. More people have problems with what the Bible says very plainly because they just don't like what it has to say. Things about judgment, for example, about heaven or hell or about sexuality or about nationalism, military violence, or about like money and social justice, care for the poor, which is why the dialogue around biblical authority and how to interpret it can't happen according to your own whims and preferences. It has to happen within the rich tradition of discipleship to Jesus. 
Stepping into the way the Bible has been understood and obeyed for thousands of years. Doesn't mean that you don't get to ask questions or have doubts or wrestle with the text, but you do it together with the community of God. And to do that, you have to study it. Richard Foster defines the process of study this way. It's a specific kind of experience in which through careful attention to reality, the mind is enabled to move in a certain direction. You can actually do that with the Bible. So the next practice is the next primary, we, primary way we read the Bible, which is study. It's up at vancity.church scripture. Now, there are all kinds of ways to study the Bible. Really, the availability of resources is at an all-time high. We know more than we've ever known about the language and history of the Bible. Heck, we, we typically do Bible study every single Sunday night. We've been doing it for years now with the Gospel of Matthew. There are podcasts and internet resources. The Bible Project, which I've mentioned, I think, in every single one of these teachings, is a personal favorite, one of the best resources I know of about biblical education. For all my beef with the internet, it's sort of changing the game in biblical interpretation. Anyone in the world can type in N.T. Wright or, you know, whoever and watch an entire lecture from some of the most prestigious voices in biblical scholarship. Did you know that you can take free seminary-level classes from respected academics in Bible and theology at biblicaltraining.org? It's true, you can. BibleGateway.com, where you go to look up Bible verses. It has all kinds of studies and commentaries. The dang Bible app has all kinds of stuff. You can read books about the Bible, about specific topics and word studies. Remember the library? That was wonderful. I missed the dang library. Or you can start as basic as possible and just buy a study Bible that enables you to study while you're reading the thing right there in one volume. There are all kinds of ways to study the Bible in-depth or kind of low-level ask. And if we want to encounter the truth within the Bible, we will have to look deeply. So let me end by reiterating something I've been saying from the very first teaching and practice in this series. Even when it comes to studying the Bible, technique is important, how you go about it, what you use, that, that's important. But it's not as important as the posture out of which you approach the Bible in the first place. Study is crucial. In fact, I, I dedicate most of my work week to doing that, studying the Bible. I believe in it. It's important to me. But where Bible study breaks down and falls apart is when we bring a pickaxe rather than a pen. When we come to the Bible ready to bend it, wanting to find in it what we want to find. I see it all the time. Someone comes out with a new book or a new podcast or whatever with a brand new take on the Bible that not only deviates but flies in the face of thousands of years of teaching about money or sexuality or church, whatever it might be. And the story always begins with, I just didn't feel like this was right. And so they come to the scriptures with a desperation for something else to be true and they look until they find it. So we make it say we, what we want it to say about the things we want to do and the things that we want to believe and the ways that we want to live. And eventually the Bible is bludgeoned into an echo chamber. It says what you're saying right back at you or what the culture says, whatever it is that you want it to say. It's a very American way of approaching the Bible. In fact, Thomas Jefferson famously just cut out every part of the Bible he didn't like until he felt nice and affirmed by what was left. Complex feats 
of artistic genius have always fallen victim to misinterpretation. And people often blame the work itself rather than the person misinterpreting it. That doesn't mean that you have to fall before the Bible, never ask questions, miserable and prostrate, cast your doubts aside, hating every second of it. This is about opening this library of writings prepared to learn what is actually true. Coming to these writings for reality, for wisdom, for life. It means that you accept, even within full understanding, or you come to accept that even if you don't have full understanding, that there is truth and that you can discover that truth in this story. So you come not to impose on it, but to learn and to be shaped by it, even if that shaping is against your preference or your culture or your comfort. That approach asks a very important, very ancient question, one of the oldest questions. Who will you trust? Outside voices, your own desire, or Jesus? Out of which reality will you choose to live? Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.